This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book. The study before us is number nine of the series in the epistle to the Colossians. It so happens that the subject that occupied our attention at the morning service is practically underneath and involved in the subject we consider today. I did hesitate and I thought, well, I don't want to overdo this. And yet, of course, there are those here this afternoon who didn't attend the morning service. And as this is a tape recording, there are ever so many more that will hear it than could even get into this chapel. So I'm going to suggest to those who were here this morning that they have a double responsibility if they hear it twice over. And they also have the joy of knowing that if it has any place in our witness, whatever the subject may be, well, we must give it to those who come in the afternoon. What an apology to make for the Word of God. But only just I felt I would explain that it wasn't done, I didn't do it on purpose, it's just come together like that. Well now, I've said so much, some of you folks will say, oh, and what was the subject this morning? Well, you see, in the mornings, we have been considering for quite a number of Sunday mornings, step by step, the unity of the Spirit. You know how it reads in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one Spirit. That's something we've been given to keep. And we face the fact that that was a unity made by God. It wasn't something we had to invent. It was something made by Christ, sealed by his blood, and given to us as a sacred trust. Well now, we moved on from that by discovering that we had gifts each one according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And then our thoughts were turned away from our little individual gifts to those early ones which the ascended Christ gave. And the ascended Christ gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints till they should reach the standard of the perfect man. In other, in other ways, we moved from the foundation of the unity of the Spirit to the attaining, or the possibility of attaining, unto the unity of the faith. And the word perfect was never dealt with this morning, but it's waiting for us. And one of the words so translated means perfect, P-E-R-F-A-C-T. That is to say, whatever is that doctrine in front of you, make it a living reality, make it a fact. Now one passage which we read in our reading this morning, has struck some of God's people very strangely. I'm going to start off our study in Colossians in my ordinary method by going somewhere else. I just say that because in the earlier days when my daughters were here, that was one of the little jokes they had at my expense. That if I was going to start with Ephesians, I'd always turn to somewhere else, you see. Uh, that's on purpose. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I won't read the passage, I'll only draw your attention uh, that it's going right down this list, uh, list of things from verse 14 starting like this But be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness what communion hath light with darkness and ends up in chapter 7 verse 1 Having therefore these promises dearly beloved let us cleanse ourselves Oh! We cleanse ourselves now. Yes, this is making your separation, which is by grace, a fact by practice. Don't you see, 
There's two sides to most questions. One is, our salvation is absolutely complete and perfect. It can never be taken away from, it can never be added to. So shall we sit down and twiddle our thumbs to the rest of time? No. We arise and walk in newness of life and seek to serve in newness of spirit. So, if, by the mercy of God, we are among those who are light instead of darkness and righteousness instead of unrighteousness, surely our response should be, as it says here, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And that's the bit that is such a difficulty, isn't it? You say, well, of all things, in scripture or out of it, to use the word perfecting holiness. Doesn't Shakespeare somewhere have the same figure when he speaks about gilding the lily and painting the rose? No, it isn't that. We're not gilding the lily. We're only taking the holiness, which is ours by marvellous gift, and seeking to live up to it. Perfecting doesn't mean improving, or God forbid that we should ever think we could improve on the holiness of God. But perfecting holiness means taking it to its legitimate conclusion. So that you see, this word perfect, we've said it so many times, we will say it again, this word perfect has embedded in it going on to the end. Telios and all the derivatives come from telos, which means the end. So the Apostle uses the figure of a race when he uses it concerning himself and says, I have finished my course. The word course, dromos, is a race course. Hippodrome, hippodrome is the word we get from it. I have finished, that's the word telos, or telaios, that gives us the word perfect. He didn't say he was perfect in our sense of the word. He said, I'm perfect in this sense that I not only started, but I finished. So now we're coming back to the epistle to the Colossians and we're going to see some of that teaching embedded in that epistle. So you'll discover now that there is a most definite balance of teaching. I ask you to cast your eye for a moment at the structure which you have in front of you and you will see these items. Here we have, uh, under the letter D, verse 23, right through to to uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And then, uh, among other things, that's the, the bulk of the passage, but among other things we have a line. Present, perfect, the word agonize, and the place Laodicea. Now we come down to the other end, in chapter 4, verses 2 to 13, we have these words repeated, the word, the mystery, manifested, and affliction and bonds, and then we have stand perfect, the word agonize, the word Laodicea. Well, that of itself is enough to those who believe God's word to be true, to say, you see, that's put like that on purpose. Now let's see the passage, shall we? Colossians 1, he is finished up in verse 27 by saying, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now he says, whom we preach. That's a characteristic thought of the apostle. Not I preach about him, but I preach him. It was the very first word used of his commission. That I, that I may preach him among the Gentiles. Now, whom we preach, warning every man 
Now, the moment you read the word warning, you're not on the ground of grace. Sheer grace. You're on the ground of responsibility. It's no good warning a person who's dead. But if he's alive, yes. So now the apostle is speaking to these believers from another angle. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. So this means not only warning them about something to avoid, but teaching them positively something to do. And as a consequence, he says that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now you see, unless we see what the man's after, we may get a little bit out of joint here. But I must go on first of all. Uh, verse 29, Whereunto I also labour, striving according to his working which worketh in me mightily. For I would not that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, this great conflict, and for them at Laodicea. So we have the word to agonise with his striving and his conflict in this passage. Now let's get the parallel, shall we? Chapter 4. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluted you. Always labouring fervently for you in prayers. Here's the same expression, agonising. That ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Harapolis. So even the accidental reference to Laodicea comes in its exact spot in its right place. Now will you turn to chapter 1 a little earlier than we looked at just now. Verse 7 As ye also learned of Epaphras always the same man at the beginning our dear fellow servant who is for you a faithful minister of Christ who also declared unto us your love in the spirit. So here's another one who's here in, in um, this first chapter standing for this truth and in the fourth chapter he's sharing with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Notice the sharing of the ministry. Epaphras is praying. What for? That you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Paul is warning and teaching. What for? That you may be presented perfect. See, one man is preaching and the other man is praying. And possibly they are both getting on with their job better because they're doing that. Because if both of them were preaching, that which is brought about by prayer would be absent. And if both of them were praying, well, the poor man who ought to have heard the message wouldn't hear it. Oh, what a need there is for us to look up to the Lord and say, what wouldst thou have me to do? And do it. Now, I have a great feeling with the Apostle Paul. He was a man of prayer. He was praying constantly. But he very seldom attended a prayer meeting, friends. And any amount of time he'd be more like Nehemiah who prayed and spoke at the same minute. I don't think he had time to go away and spend hours on his knees. He was praying. But oh how glad he was that others had an opportunity sometimes to remember him. I like to think, I was told once early days in pruning a fruit tree 
You know, when you uh, first start, you get your book of gardening out, and you look at the tree in the picture, and you look at yours in the garden, and they don't look alike. It's like the young married man. His wife said to him, well, what are you hesitating for? Well, he got his knife and fork in his hand, and he got a joint. But he said, there's no dotted lines on it. You know, where you start carving. But this was one of the rules. The instructor said to me, now forget the whole tree. Think only of that one branch. Now then, every piece on that one branch is either to bear fruit or to be a leader. And you can't be both friends. You can't have the fruit of a quiet, pious life and be a leader like the Apostle Paul. The other people will see you don't get a very quiet life. Beaten, shipwrecked, starved, floating about in... Oh dear, dear, dear. He is a leader. So he says, I pray constantly, but always as you pray for me that I'm open my mouth as I should. Oh, what a coordination is he. So here we have these two men, Paul and Epaphras. They are both on the same object, but they're approaching it in two different ways. And they're both right. So Paul says, I'm warning, I'm teaching, Epaphras is praying, and the one thing in front of us is that they may be complete and perfect. Well now the next thing is this. In this same chapter, verse 22, we have these words. In the body of his flesh, through death. Now this isn't preaching, and it isn't praying. This is sacrifice and the shedding of blood. This is deeper still. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now that's the first presentation. And yet, you may say the ink is hardly dry that the Apostle used when he wrote verse 22, when he says, and I want to present every man perfect. But you say, Paul, can you improve on this wonderful presentation? Improve, he says, no. Ah, you're using the word perfect like some of you people do in English. Always oh, says, I'm not using it like that. No. There's no interference with these, with these two. They work together. Now look back again at the presentation that comes through the work of Christ. Holy. That's a word we hardly like to use of ourselves, and rightly so. We don't hesitate sometimes to say we believe we're right. But to, be, to always maintain that we're holy in the sight of God is to have seen very deep into the counsels of the Almighty and realise the basis upon which all our hopes rest, before we can say that. We can say it, but we know it doesn't rest upon any attainment of our own, but solely upon that sacrificial work of Christ. We are sanctified, as it says in another epistle, by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Or as in the epistle to the Corinthians, that he has been made, no, he has been made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification as well as redemption. That's ours. So he says, unblameable. Now these two words that follow in verse 22 subdivide the word holy. Is to present you holy. That is to say, unblameable and unreprovable. Now what's the difference between those two? On the surface they look the same, don't they? But there's no vain repetition in the word of God. The word unblameable means without blemish. And if you know your Bible, you know that that refers to the priest and the sacrifice. The, the sacrifice must be without blemish. 
You couldn't say at the last minute, I'll run this little old lamb up for the Passover because it's a bit off. It's got to be kept up for five days and examined. God knew the heart of man. That which was a type of Christ must be perfect. There must be nothing superfluous. There must be nothing lacking. Just perfect. Without blemish. That's our position, friends, in Christ. Equivalent to the temple standard. And then the word unreprovable gives us that majestic word in Romans the 8th chapter. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's the police court word. So in the law court and in the temple, we stand perfectly accepted in Christ. Now then, an ordinary reader, of course we are all extraordinary readers, aren't we? But an ordinary reader who reads of that perfect acceptance, that double acceptance in verse 22, might even charge the Apostle Paul as a certain amount of timidity to say, and he wants to go on and present every man perfect. But you know what he means now, don't you? Always says it's one thing to be presented, to be looking forward to that presentation in Christ. It's another thing for you to in any measure shape up to it. So just as he said in Corinthians, there was this distinction between the right and the wrong, between darkness and light, between the temple of God and idols. Yet nevertheless, he said, don't rest like that. But you now, you seek to cleanse yourself, perfecting, taking to its legitimate conclusion, perfecting holiness in the sight of God. So now you see the apostle has that in mind. Whom we preach, warning, teaching. Now what's he got to warn about? Well, if you look at the second chapter, verse 8, beware. Verse 18, let no beguile you. All of them are plenty of traps, plenty of snares. And these people were open to invasion of these things. In the earlier epistles of Paul, like Galatians, the trap and the snare was to go back to circumcision and putting themselves under the law of Mount Sinai in order to sort of uh, make assurance double sure. And the apostle swept it aside and said, if you put yourself under law, Christ shall profit you nothing. When we reach Colossians, there's still a mingling of legalism, but now they're getting mixed up with the more Asiatic, uh, the philosophy sides coming in. And again he says, beware, lest any man make a spoil of you through a vain, deceitful philosophy. Our version puts it, philosophy and vain deceit. If philosophy is true, well, it's true. Uh, but he says there's a good deal that goes for philosophy, which is a vain deceitful teaching. And after the tradition of men, or after the rudiments of the world, well, how shall I know? Well, he says you need not make a study of philosophy and then start all over again and worry yourself about the traditions of men and then start all over again wasting time about the rudiments of the world, just ask one question. Where does Christ come in it? That's the answer. And not after Christ. If you go a little bit further down this chapter, the same thing. <clears throat> Verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. Why? Well, they're shadows. Where does Christ come in? All the reality is Christ. There the word body is opposed to the word shadow. Let no man beguile you of your reward 
verse 19, and not holding the head. Once again, somebody might interrupt this meeting and say, and what does it mean to be a voluntary humility? What's it mean by intruding into those things which he hath not seen? What's it mean by being puffed up by his fleshly mind? Well, friend, don't you worry about that. You take the other side. Not holding the head. That's it. You see, you've got enough there in the philosophy, the traditions, the rudiments, the vain uh, intrusions to so occupy your mind and thought that you'll be an old person dead and buried before you realise the glories of your calling. Just the one question. Where does Christ come in? answers it. And you know, friends, I have to read books like that sometimes. I haven't read all the books that have been sent to me and given to me or that I had on my shelves because occasionally I had to refer to something. But when I first received that book, I got the index and I got down the word atonement and the word of... And that was enough for me. If they said certain things about those vital things and concerned the person of Christ, I knew more or less what to expect. Either way, good or bad. Well, here we have then one presentation. The presentation as a result of Christ's finished work, which nothing can interfere with, and the presentation over and above that, which the Apostle had in mind. Now, what can be over and above? Well, this is coming to another aspect of truth. Over and above salvation as a gift is the reward of faithful service, isn't there? You remember that Ephesians gives you the basis and Philippians gives you the prize. Or to put it, in Ephesians it's the hope of the calling and in Philippians it's the prize of the calling. Now, there's no if about the hope of the calling. If any believer belongs to any one particular calling, whatever is the hope of that calling is his by purchase of the blood of Christ. He can't miss it if he wants to. Yet, when you come to the Apostle Paul's own statement about himself in Philippians 3, he's putting a lot of ifs in. Shall we see that? Of course I know this is old ground with some of you, but it may be new ground for some who are listening. So I dare not apologise and say, well, we'll pass by like the priest and the Levite on the other side, we'll come and see. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him. Now, he doesn't say, I want to know the proof of his resurrection as an historic fact. I want to know how the body was taken from the tomb and who did it. No, no. He says, I, I, that's all right, that's finished with me. That I may know him and the power of it. The power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. And I think those, that must be always the order. For me to dare to venture to share the sufferings of Christ without the power of his resurrection is just spiritual suicide. Couldn't do it. But if I know the power of the risen Christ, then I may even volunteer to stand where he stood in this world, to be treated like he was treated, to be despised and rejected if needs be, to have the best I can give man thrown back in my face, but I couldn't stand it apart from him. So he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, and he goes deeper being made conformable unto his death. I'd like you to notice that in verse 21 he uses that word conformable again. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. He says, my poor old body may be conformable unto his death down here. 
But always as I'm carrying with me this blessed thought, that they can do what they like with me here. They can't alter the fact that it's going to be made eventually conformable unto the body of his glory. That's the power of his resurrection. And if you doubt it, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So the apostle was hitched onto something, wasn't he? I've heard somebody singing, hitch your wagon to a star or something. Well, I hitch mine to something even more wonderful, to the risen Christ. Now then, what's this all leading to? If by any means I might attain unto the out-resurrection, that which is out from among the dead. In some versions there's one word out, some versions there's two. This is not ordinary resurrection. This is parallel with the words of Hebrews, they did this that they may have obtain a better resurrection. Well, if there's a better resurrection, there's one that's not so good. So what's all this mean? Let's go on. Always oh, is not as though I had already attained. I haven't got there. Either were already perfect. Paul, if you were not perfect by the time you wrote Philippians, what hope's there for us? Oh, but he says, you don't think I mean that I'm a good man and I'm getting better and better. Oh, no, he said, no, I'm dealing with this idea of a prize and a running. And I've got the Greek sports, which you know all about as my figure. He uses it very consistently in 1 Corinthians. He says that those that run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that you may obtain. And so he says here, not as though I had already attained, Either were already perfect, so that means to say equivalent to attaining. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and this man knew the history of his ancient people. You know, they came out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness. And they never read the poem, which was not written in their day, but they could have quoted it, or somebody could to them, the distance lends enchantment to the view. When they were in Egypt, they sighed by reason of their bondage and all the affliction that they endured. When they were the other side of the Red Sea, they got, shall I say, and I think I'm translating the Hebrew word correctly, they got fed up with the manna. That was the gift of God. And they said, there's nothing to eat but this. That's all it says. Nothing to eat but this. We remember the onion and the garlic and the fish that we did eat in Egypt freely. Oh dear. All the tasty bits. Onion, garlic, see? Smelly bits, fish. We come out of the world and red seas between us. Is there anybody in this congregation or listening to me who have never stood on the other side of your Red Sea and looked across and said, hmm, I've given up a tremendous lot. It's pretty flat going now. A wilderness is flat going, friends. The manna was a flat tasting stuff. They didn't have very much else to help it out. They had their water assured and their bread and that's about all. That's the wilderness journey. The best is waiting for us. And in the very same book, the book of Numbers, in exactly the same spot when you get your structure, you've got the pomegranates and the grapes and the other fruits that were waiting for them over the other side. So they had to walk by faith and keep that in mind. Now then, here we have the apostle. 
forgetting those things which are behind. You see, these people didn't forget them. They carried them in their mind and it took them back in heart to Egypt. And some of them died in the wilderness as a result. And reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark. According, uh, press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, Let us therefore as many as be perfect, better still, let us therefore as many as would be perfect be thus minded, and so on. He's addressing those who would follow on with himself. Well, there's the man who uses the word perfect the same in the same context and the same meaning that he brings it over to Colossians. And here we have another point perhaps to keep us keep in our minds. Ephesians is practically all the way through consistently teaching one thing, giving you the revelation of the new calling without a lot of additions. Philippians is a one thing, a one subject epistle. It's mainly to do with working out the salvation, not the salvation itself. But Colossians comes along and gives you, in a summary form, the teaching of Ephesians, about the prisoner, about the mystery, about the body, about the members, but it also gives you the prize of the high calling of Philippians, because you've got the prize here. And in Colossians 2, verse 18, we have the self-same word that is translated prize in Philippians. In case anybody missed it before, I'll give you this. Let no name beguile you. Now, it's not an ordinary beguiling. It's teaching you of a prize. I'll give you the word for prize. Brabion. B-R-A-B. That's the root of the word. I can't tell you why. Brabion is a prize. Tatter Brabuo is to judge against you with regard to the prize. It's some influence at the elbow of the umpire who, when you touch the tape, he says no. Let no man cheat you in this running. And he will if he can, this evil one. And Satan knows his limitations, friends. Right back in the days of Job, the first book of the Bible, God said you can touch all that he possesses, but you can't touch his life. Friends, Satan never wastes his time trying to rob you of your life in Christ. But he can't. Your life is hid with Christ in God. But he'll rob you of your reward. He'll cheat the Son of God of a crown that you could lay at his feet if he can. So it's good to be enlightened as to where the attack comes, doesn't it? Well, now we come back to Colossians and we find there's another aspect of this truth waiting for us. In chapter 1, we have in verse 12 these words. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet. There's no doubt about it. The word means to be completely fitted for any particular occasion. Whatever will be demanded of us in glory is already ours in Christ. We need have no shrinking fear and say, oh, I wouldn't like to go there with angels and principalities all around me. I should feel out of it. No, you won't, friends, for you'll not be out of it. You'll be in Christ and a complete provision made for you. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now you say, have you got something you're going to add to that? Oh yes, you have. Well, what are you going to add to that? Oh, we come to chapter 3. And chapter 3, it doesn't take so long to speak about wives and husbands and children and fathers and servants and masters. 
But he does, you know, Ephesians gives you a whole chapter and a, a good piece afterwards. Colossians, as I said, says the same thing but crams it into a smaller space. Well, we're not concerned for the moment about wives and husbands, children and fathers, but we are concerned of what it says about the servants. And I notice that the Apostle has more than once used the word servant or slave to tack on some of the most glorious teaching there is. He doesn't tack it on to the wife and the husband only, and they have an opportunity to manifest to angels and to men the relationship of the church with the Lord, as he says. But here the servants are picked out particularly. Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service, as men pleasers, because these people have been everlastingly causing uh, these strikes, wouldn't they? I mean, if any, anybody started to serve an earthly master, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God, what a row they'd be. And I don't see what you can do about it. I've got no opinions about it. But I know this is a very high standard, friends, isn't it? And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not unto men. I wonder if that's how we serve. It's a searching piece, isn't it? Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. The reward of the inheritance. It doesn't mean the inheritance is a reward. It's just the same as the prize of the high calling. The high calling isn't the prize. The high calling has a hope attached to it. The high calling has an additional prize attached to it. The inheritance is yours because it's yours in Christ. But you've been beguiled of the reward or you can win it. So here's the additional bit. You will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now some have objected. They said no. There's no such thing as forfeiture in the church of the one body. Well then the apostle made a terrible mistake. Verse 25. That he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done and there's no respect of persons. That's awkward isn't it? But you see, he's not dealing with our salvation, he's not dealing with our membership of the body, he's not dealing with that neatness and fitness which is already ours, we're still unblameable, still unreprovable in his sight in Christ. But he's looking outside for a minute and says, now, what have you done with it? And so he even stoops to say, you know, God is not unmindful of the way in which you serve him. He says, even a cup of cold water given in his name should not go without a recognition. So it's not great and mighty things he's looking for, but all he is looking for some consistent response. So, the whole of our meeting has been taken up with this one thought, hasn't it? But don't you think it's worthwhile sometimes to get it? And some of you have heard it twice over today, from another angle. Oh, what good people you will be, if only you live up to it. Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? But the God who has given us this word is the God who stands behind it. And we who draw all we need for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of glory, we draw all our need from the same person who is the head of the body, the church. Uh, whatever it is that we are called upon to do for his sake, all sufficiency is there. Well now, I don't think we can go much further I just want to make sure there's not some point that I ought to give you before we close. I don't think there is. I felt that I must not 
slip these two passages and say, well, we've had it before, perhaps we'll go on. I ask you to consider that in embedded in this epistle, which so emphasizes our completeness, because it does say it, just, oh, that's one bit I wanted to do, yes. In chapter 2, in contrast with all the uh, philosophy and tradition, he says in verse 10, ye are complete in him. So you are complete. Now the man is praying that you may stand perfect and complete. He said, well, I am complete. Say, so, yes, in Christ. But what about your response? What about the walk that's worthy? What about the desire to share with him? That's the other side. So we've got the two. And this, this means to say that we have a balance in our teaching. And we can be unbalanced in two directions. And that's what's happened in the church. There are some who so stress the sovereignty and election of God that they're just sheer fatalists. Some of them have even said they never teach their children, they never preach to their children, because if they're elect, they'll be saved, and if they're not, whatever you do, they'll be damned. I don't read that in the scripture, do you? And on the other hand, there are some who have seen the exhortation to walk worthy, and they put that so great that they're shivering in their shoes because they know full well that every anything they've done will never be worthy of salvation, so there are those who are going about this world and saying, nobody can be sure they're saved, whatever. Well, the scripture says you can. It all depends upon what the salvation is resting, the finished work of Christ and so on. But we need the two together. We need the glorious assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And on the other hand, that unless by grace we hold on to the word of God and seek to translate it into daily practice, we shall not be as far along the road as we might be to the glory of him who loved us and died for us, that whether we sleep or whether we are awake, the meaning is whether we are sleeping or whether we are drowsy, we shall live together with him, yes, but we may miss a little bit that we might have taken with us if we'd only be more watchful. So may the Lord be pleased to grant that this emphasis in Colossians, Philippians, 2 Corinthians and Hebrews, among other passages, which urge us to leave the word of the beginning and go on unto perfection, may find an echo in our hearts and in our minds.